Well, hello, Coastway Church. It is great to see you. You can go ahead and open your Bibles and join me in John chapter 6. And if you don't have a copy of Scripture uh, in your lap, that's okay. We're going to have the Scriptures on the screen. You can follow along in one or both of those uh, places. Uh, but here's, here's where we're going today. All throughout human history, bread has been a picture of life. It's been a picture of provision. It's actually been a picture of relationship. So I, I grew up in the mountains of western North Carolina, and oftentimes during the winter, there would be a great snowstorm that would get ready to sweep through uh, where I grew up. And the two things that you would always get, and I guess this is also true with a tropical storm, is bread and milk. It's like, how are those milk sandwiches going down? I never did understand that. That was a little odd. But make sure that you have bread, make sure that you have uh, milk. And I don't know... Maybe you like the restaurants where they just like fill you up on bread and they get you like all, you know, fat and happy before the uh, entree actually even comes out. But it's like, uh, I think a Red Lobster, those cheddar biscuits, or Outback Steakhouse, they bring out that loaf bread, or Olive Garden, the, the, the garlic bread, the breadsticks that they bring out. I'm convinced that's what's keeping those places going. I really am, because they, they fill you up and, and, and they satisfy you even before you even uh, get to the meal. But Jesus also, he said, it's interesting, he said in the Lord's Prayer, this is how we're supposed to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily what? Our daily bread. And so it's like the one thing that Jesus is identifying with like an essential need, he uses bread as the image of the daily need that we have. And as Americans, uh, the average American will eat 53 pounds of bread every, every year. And so, like, we, we fill ourselves up on bread. And uh, today, what we're, what we're getting ready to see in John chapter 6 is we're going to see the most well-documented, well-known miracle in the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's whenever Jesus feeds the 5,000, and he multiplies a, a few meager loaves of bread and a couple of sardines into enough to feed, uh, more than enough, to feed at least 10,000 people, maybe even more than that. And what I find so relatable uh, about this is how Jesus' own disciples didn't think that it was possible. And, uh, and I'll just I'll jump ahead really quickly, and I just want to share something that we're about to read in the text, but this gives you a little context. In uh, John 6, verse 8, it says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And so, you ever have that moment when you feel like you need to inform Jesus and let him know of the situation because he clearly doesn't know what he's doing? So that's what the disciples are doing right here. It's like, we don't have enough to feed 10, much less 10,000. And that's the point that we're supposed to take away from this miracle. And here's the the whole idea in one sentence that I want to offer to you right now. It's this, it's that Jesus is great, great enough to turn less than enough into more than enough. Jesus is great enough to turn less than enough into more than enough. And I want to ask this question just to establish the significance for all of us. Where do you feel like less than enough? Where do you feel like you have less than enough? Where do you feel like you are less than enough? Maybe you feel like you have less than enough talent, less than enough courage, less than enough money, less than enough motivation. Less than enough energy, less than enough experience, less than enough qualification. And I want to just, I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable today. I'm going to be vulnerable with you. 
most weeks, more weeks than not, when I'm preparing to speak on behalf of God and open up God's Word and declare this is what the Lord says, I do not feel qualified. I, I, I feel uh, drastically outmatched by the, the weighty task of like, this is what God's Word says and this is what we're supposed to do about it. But I, I want to I tell you that wherever that area is for you, that, that is the making of a miracle. That's, that, is, that is the point where God wants to meet you and encounter you uh, today and all days. And here's the hope that I want to hold out to you. Jesus is more than enough for those who feel like they are less than enough. If, and, and I just want to go, go ahead and acknowledge the limitation of, of the sermon, even the limitations of the gospel. The gospel is not for people who are more than enough. It, it's not for people who, who have enough, who know enough, who are strong enough, who are pretty enough. It's for people who recognize I am hungry, I am poor, I am needy, but for Christ, I have no help and I have no hope. So you, you, you come to the beginning of Christ when you come to the end of yourself. And that's the, that's the message of this miracle. Pick up with me in chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So just for context, after what? Well, what does after this mean? Well, that was after performing multiple miracles. So we've seen Jesus turn water into wine. We have seen Jesus heal this important royal official's son. He had a lot of money. He probably had the granite countertops. He had you know, a lot of square footage. He had all the, all the furnishings, all the good things that money could buy, but he didn't have enough to, to heal his son. And none of that, he, he couldn't turn any of that. He had to turn to Jesus because Jesus, Jesus was more than enough when he was less than enough. And then there was a man who was invalid for 38 years and had, had no help, no hope of, of, of ever being healed, and then an encounter with Jesus, and it's like his mobility is restored. So that's what's happened up to this point, verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And that sounds noble enough until you realize that the reason why people are coming to Jesus at this point is the same reason why uh, people want to go like to the Alabama Theater or these other attractions around Myrtle Beach. It's more so to be entertained. It's because I want something, uh, I want something like for me. I'm, I'm not looking to Jesus at this point for Him to use me. I'm looking to Jesus, to Jesus for me to use uh, Him. And that's why they're, they're coming after Him. Uh, and so they've traveled. Here's interesting. They've tra- so Jesus is just... Uh, spanned about four to five miles across this body of water in a boat. And this crowd, they, they had seen the miracles that he was performing on the sick, and they traveled around that body of water about nine miles. You know, people will travel a long way to be entertained. People will travel a long way if they think that they're going to get what they want, right? So it's not that they're following Jesus because they like want Jesus. It's because they're following Jesus because they want from Jesus. Uh, and I just want to ask this question, like, why do people follow Jesus? There's a lot of reasons why people would follow Jesus. Uh, well, kind of three basic categories that you could think of. There's, there's selfish reasons, there's social reasons, and then there's spirit-filled reasons. So a selfish reason would be, you might have heard that story of, of, of the two sons. It's called the prodigal son, where the son is in the father's house, but he doesn't want the father, he wants the father's stuff. And so he demands, he gets fed up with it, and he just says, God, or, uh, Father, give me everything that is due to me. And he takes off with all that stuff, and he blows it all, and it's not nearly as fulfilling as he thought. 
And then there's another son in the house, and he's just like a willing victim. He's just holding on until he can get his share. It's a picture of rebellion and religion, but it's like these selfish reasons why, why people will follow uh, after, after Jesus. It's like, uh, I'm going to follow Jesus until he, he gives me what I want that may, may or may not line up with, with his glory. And if he stops, then I'm out. Uh, but then there's social reasons. Uh, this is what psychologists call herd mentality. It's, it's like uh, you, you see someone doing something and you're like, you're going to go and you're going to do it. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Ice Age, but there's like these dodo birds and like one will run off the cliff and the others will like follow and it will just be like this mass like nosedive off the cliff. It's like, why did you do that? Well, I saw this, this other dodo doing it. And so other, other people will follow Jesus because they, they see another person doing it. Okay, And uh, I, it's, it's interesting. You'll do things in a crowd that you wouldn't do by yourself. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example of this is because I love to sing. I love to sing. And when I sing, I sing loud. And uh, the, the tech team, they've made sure that my mic is turned off during worship right down here because it's a noise. Uh, it's a joyful noise. It's not a, a, a very pleasant noise, though, okay? So, uh, but I will sing it. Like, if I get an opportunity just to lift my voice, I get so excited. And it's, it, it's going to happen in a crowd uh, like this. But often, that's, that's, we got to be careful about the crowd mentality. It's like, my friends are doing it, so I'm going to do it. I've got one or two friends who go to church, so that's why I'm going to go to church. And at some point, you hope that that changes. You hope that it's more than just, I'm going for my friends, it's I'm going for my faith. Because this same crowd that is going to nominate Jesus to be the king over Jerusalem is also going to be numbered among those people who are going to shout, crucify him, before he goes to the cross. And so there's, there's selfish reasons, there's social reasons, but then there's spirit-filled reasons. You know, when you think about a spirit-filled reason, that, that, that's just the, that's the immaterial part of you that sees that there's more to life than just what you see. It's like there is heaven and hell. There is right and wrong. There is truth and lie. There is joy and despair. And what I want in my inner being is I want heaven. I want truth. I, I want what's right. I want joy. And I don't just see Jesus as the means to these things. I see Jesus as these things. And so why do you follow Jesus? You follow Jesus because He is the fulfillment of our heart's deepest desires. That's a Spirit-filled reason, right? And so I want to ask you this question. Why are you following Jesus? What is, it, uh, what is it that brings you close to Jesus? Because I can tell you this, if it's, a, if it's a, a selfish reason, if it's a social reason, at some point or another, that's not sustainable. Because people are going to move on. Uh, because life is going to get hard. Because God is going to flip the script and He's not always going to give you what you want when you want it. And He's going to disappoint you at times. It's, and it's not because he's trying to withhold good from you. It's, it's, it's because he's trying to form good in you and help you see that he's the one that you're actually after. But if it's a spirit-filled reason, then here's what I want you to see. C.S. Lewis, he, he said this, uh, it's a famous quote. Um, he, he said, basically, if you put first things first, that's if you put God first, you'll get second things thrown in. Uh, second things are all the things that we try to get from God, right? Maybe it's a, a, a relationship. Maybe it's blessing uh, maybe it's physical health. It's like, I want all those things from Jesus, okay? But if you, if you try to get those things and, and make those second things first, then you're going to miss out on that and you're going to miss out on God. But if you put first things first, you get Him and oftentimes you get second things thrown in. And so that's the way that we want to follow Jesus and that's the invitation of the gospel is endure, persevere. Verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there He sat down with His disciples. 
So a common thread in Jesus' ministry was how he often retreated with his disciples. And why would he retreat? It was because he needed to rest and he needed to renew. And, and how humbling is it for us in our do-all, be-all host culture that Jesus grew tired. And Jesus knew when to press the brakes, to rest, and to, and to renew. Because remember, he's the God-man. He's fully God, and he's fully man. So all the preaching, all the teaching, all of the healing, all of the, the walking, all of doing the will of God, all of loving people, it's like he's ready for a break almost. It's like he needs to pause that so that he can continue to do more of that. Have you ever been there, by the way? I mean, just exhausted, tired. Some of you, you're there today. It's like you, you, you go to bed, and right about the time that you get into that like deep sleep, the kids wake up. And it's like, how long, oh Lord, is this going to go on? Or maybe you, uh, maybe you show up to work and you feel like, man, I just left this place. How, how, how has this... How has this same song and dance like started over uh, again? Or maybe you're, you're at a place you're just like, I don't have enough help in life. I don't. I, I, feel, I feel like I don't have enough help with all of the burdens and the loads of my life. And here's, here's what I want to see. Here's why Jesus helps us so greatly. And this is why we need to go to the Word of God for a word from God. Because right here, Jesus models a tension that all of us are supposed to live in. First, it, he models this. Being tired is not an excuse to stop loving people. Just because we're tired doesn't mean that we get a hall pass on loving people and being to others as Christ has been to us. Because when the gospel is our motivation, we should go to bed tired from loving people, not tired of loving people. Do you, do you see the difference? It's called a holy exhaustion. But secondly... If Jesus had to retreat and recharge, we should too. All of us. We, we have limits. And we have limited fishes and loaves that we bring to God every, every single week. And uh, we, we get this, this reminder. Anytime you get on an airplane, I'm just like vividly reminded of what this is like because they'll tell you in case of an emergency, make sure that you put on your, your what first? Your oxygen mask. Right, And that's to say that you can't help other people. You can't take care of other people unless you are taking good care of yourself. And so there's this tension that we see right here, and Jesus models it beautifully. But notice also in verse 3, it says the disciples are with Jesus. That is very telling, by the way. You'd be, it'd be easy just to, to move right past that and move on to the next verse for some significance, but there's a lot of significance right there because what is a real disciple of Jesus? Well, a disciple of Jesus is someone who's with Jesus. It's someone who spends time with Jesus. It's someone who goes to the places with Jesus. It's someone who wants to be with Jesus. And the disciples are with Jesus, and as we'll see, they're with Him, and their doubts are still present. And uh, the point being is, Right, right here is like, even if you have doubts, even if you're struggling in some, some areas, the call is still to be with Jesus, and that's a disciple. Verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. All right, so Passover, let me talk about this for a moment because it's, it's connected to the miracle that Jesus is about to perform when he feeds all these people. So Passover was a huge deal in Jewish culture. It's the closest equivalent that we as Americans have to the Passover would be Thanksgiving. 
It's when we get all of our, all of our family, all the crazy uncles, all the first and second and third cousins uh, who come together, and, and, and we give thanks over a, a meal, and, and we're going to feast. And that was, that was Jews with the Passover, essentially, because for thousands of years, Passover was the greatest Jewish feast where Jews would reflect on how God rescued and delivered them. They would reflect on God's goodness, and they would reflect on God's greatness. And the name Passover actually comes from back in the Old Testament, you may know this, that God sent these plagues of judgment over Egypt as they were oppressing God's people and resisting and rebelling against His word. And the tenth plague was just judgment that God sent over Pharaoh and over Egypt for their oppressive, disobedient ways. And i got to tell you, the tenth plague was a scary one. It's, it's like something that you would see on a horror movie, honestly. Is what God did is He sent an angel of death through the streets of, of Egypt to take the life of every firstborn. But what we see is that God actually made provision for the angel of death to pass over the homes that were, and this is important, marked by blood and stocked with bread. And the blood was that of a spotless lamb that was slain and spread across the doorposts. When the angel sees this, he passes over. And the bread was a part of the Passover that was to be inside the house. And the angel sees this and passes over. And what Jesus is about to do is he's about to connect the dots and prove himself to be the ultimate Passover provision. And how does he do that? Because he's going to fill 10,000 empty stomachs with bread that points to how he fills our empty souls with life. Because what these people are doing is they're all thinking about the Passover preparations. You know the week leading up to Thanksgiving? Like how stressful that is? How like you got to get all the food together, you got to get all the people together, you got to get the house clean. That's how all of these all of these people are feeling at this point. And in the midst of thinking about this, Jesus is literally standing in front of them as the Lamb of God who takes away sin, as the bread of life who was broken for sinners, who is physically providing for them in that moment. And what God says is that it's only when the doorposts of our lives are marked by Jesus' blood and body that death will pass over us. And the equivalent for that today is the Lord's Supper. And so whenever we observe uh, the shed blood, that's the wine. Whenever we, we, we take the, the, the bread, that's the bro- Jesus' body that's broken for us. And that's where these people's minds at. And Jesus, the Bible is so cool, by the way, because there were so many miracles that John could have included in this gospel. If you read all the way to the end, it says that there were more miracles that Jesus performed than what he had time to write down in this account. So every miracle was included with a, with a particular purpose to help us see the larger purpose of Jesus' life and how he fulfills our souls. And so what he's doing right here is he's saying, this is the Passover. This is the point, Jesus as the bread of life. Take a look at verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then, that's Jesus, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat. So something interesting right here is uh, when the disciples were called and appointed by Jesus, each one was given like a, a specific role. Jesus structured his, his ministry and he's, he's a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. And one of Philip's jobs was to make sure that Jesus and the other disciples were resourced at all times. And that's because Philip, he was, he was very mathematical, he's very methodical. Think like an Enneagram 1 or an Enneagram 6. 
He, he was very, very planned, very precise. And so Jesus comes to prepared, planned, precise Philip with a question that he can't answer. And it probably drew, uh, drove him batty. But he's asking this question, Hey, hey Philip, um, where, could we get, where could we get enough bread for this many people? Do, do you happen to know anybody who would be powerful enough to, to feed this many people? Uh, and, and Philip totally bombs this question, by the way. But verse 6, let's take a look. Jesus said this to test him. And what's that about? Why does God test me? A faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. A friendship that can't be tested is a friendship that can't be trusted. A marriage that can't be tested is a marriage that can't be trusted. And like any important relationship, Jesus is going to test those who truly trust in him. And that's what he's doing right here. He says he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And this is encouraging. Jesus' readiness to provide is not based on the quality of our plans or the extent of our power. Be encouraged with this. Because Jesus knew what he would do. He's, he, this, this is so helpful. He's purposed to provide even when, especially when, we feel weak and we feel uncertain. In fact, a prerequisite for provision is for us to transfer trust from our plans to Jesus' plans. And can I encourage you with this? Jesus knows what He's going to do about your sickness. Jesus knows what He's going to do about your unemployment. Jesus knows what He's going to do about your check engine light. Jesus knows what He's going to do about your struggling marriage. Jesus knows what He's going to do about the secret sin that nobody else knows about. Jesus knows what He's going to do about your living situation. Jesus knows what He's going to do about that transition that you're walking through or about to go through. And what's your role if Jesus knows? Well, actually, you do what the disciples did. Your role is to remain close enough to Him, doubts and all, to watch how He's going to work out for good the very thing that you don't see yet. And like so many of us, though, Philip's not there yet. So <laughs> take a look at verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. All right. It's like, come on, dude. So, so Philip's interaction with Jesus right here actually gives us a lot of hope. And the reason I say that is because he's close to Jesus, but he's still dealing with doubt. You ever been there? I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to trust Jesus. I'm trying to walk with Jesus, but I'm still doubting. I'm still uncertain. But, you know, one would think, like, how much has Philip seen at this point? You would think he would have more faith and more hope that, oh, I've, I watched him turn the water into wine. I watched him heal this man's son. I watched him heal this, this invalid. I believe, he, Jesus, you're going to do it again. No, far from it. That's not even close to where Philip lands right here. He gets out his Texas Instruments calculator and starts crunching the numbers, and then he's like, okay, 200 denarii, that's six months of wages. Okay, let's just say hypothetically, you know, if you make $60,000, that's, that's $30,000 that it's going to take to barely feed this group of, of people. That's Philip's way of saying, no plan good enough to feed this many, there's no plan good enough to feed this many people. It's been a good run, Jesus. We need to go ahead and we need to send them home before this gets worse. It's like so relatable, right? Like Part of, of what this miracle is intended to show us is that no matter how hard we work 
or how much we spend to fulfill ourselves, it will never be enough. And some of you, you still feel like it's on you to earn your salvation. You think Jesus got it started, but it's up to you to say it is finished. It's like Jesus, Jesus got it started with the whole cross and resurrection thing, but I've, gotta, I've really got to clench my fists and grip my teeth and push my way through this in order for it to actually happen. And so it's Jesus plus your resume. And I want to put this in perspective for you because we, we live near the ocean. There's pools all around. We like to go swimming. We like to be in the water when it's hot. That's just a part of where we live, right? Well, the greatest swimmer ever is Michael Phelps. Okay, so he's the most decorated Olympic swimmer in history. And he's the best. So let's just say if anybody had to swim, here's the task. All humanity rises and falls off this task. One person is nominated to swim across the Atlantic Ocean and make, make it safely to Europe. Okay, who are we going to nominate? The best. Who do we nominate? Okay, Michael Phelps in his prime would fall miserably short. Even the best of us falls short. And the distance between us and God caused by our sin is a great chasm that is even greater than the passage across the Atlantic Ocean from the States to Europe. And what we have to understand is that the only way that we can experience safe passage is across the spread shoulders of Jesus by faith through grace. He is the only way that we can be saved. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. You receive it. Don't achieve it so that no one can boast. And so transfer trust from your works to Jesus' work. That's where this starts. That's how this all happens. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Again, I just uh, I love how the disciples' doubts don't disqualify them from experiencing a miracle, right? Because the one thing they get right, <laughs> the only thing they get right right here, is they pick their doubts up and they bring them to Jesus. How about you? What are you doing with your doubts? Where are you bringing your doubts? If anything, this story ought to show us that Jesus is not afraid of our doubts, that Jesus can handle our doubts, and the best place that we should take them is right to the feet of Jesus. But you know, Jesus' willingness to work in your life is not based on the quality of your faith, it's based on the object of your faith. So let's say that you're out, you know, you're, you're out in the ocean and you get carried, carried out and you start to drown. It's like, in that moment, you're desperate for help, right? Because you know your life depends on it. And, and here, here comes like the Coast Guard or something, and they throw out a, a life preserver. In that moment, your survival is not based on the amount of faith that you place in that life preserver. It's just based on the willingness to reach out and grab it. Because what's going to determine your livelihood and your life in that moment is whether or not the life preserver can hold you up. And I want to tell you that the life preserver of Jesus will always hold you up even when your reach is weak. Even when your faith is struggling. Even when you're dealing with doubts. And so take a look at uh, verse 10. Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. 
So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Think 5,000 households, because women and children are also there too. This is as many as 20,000 people. It's an enormous amount of people. And at this point, you can imagine the disciples' blank stares. They're like, sit down in the grass. Why, though? <laughs> like, what, what difference is this going to actually make? And here's, here's what I want you to see. Extraordinary miracles always start with everyday obedience. Extraordinary miracles always start, usually start with something that Jesus asks you to do that you can't make any sense of. But you trust him anyway. And so what, what happens is Jesus says, sit, and the disciples are like, okay, come on, let's do this. I, you know, I guess we'll see how this goes. They have the people sit down, and so far, here's what we've seen. You need two things in the Christian life, by the way. You need an open life and you need an open Bible. Uh, that's, you can't have, if, you, if you take away one of those, you're going to be distorted. Your faith is going to be frustrating, and it's just going to lack that fullness. You need an open Bible and an open life. So far, we've seen an open life because the disciples openly and honestly bring their doubts to Jesus. And an equivalent for us today is we openly and honestly bring our doubts into community and we invite prayer and support. But we also see an open Bible because the disciples hear from God. They hear directly from the mouth of Jesus on how to move forward despite their doubts, and they obey. So when you've got to be close enough to hear from God in order to know what to do through your doubts. That's why you've got to have an open Bible too. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them as, uh, to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. I would encourage you to underline that phrase as much as they wanted. Because what happens is less than enough becomes more than enough only when and only as we bring our sin and we bring our stuff and entrust it into God's hands. You know, I've heard a lot of sermons on this text that just focus on money. And I, th I think you can do that. You can talk about how whenever we're, we bring our money and our resources to Jesus' feet, He can he can multiply it. He can bless it. That's a principle that we see in Scripture. Um, and I, I, I didn't feel like that's what our church needed today, that we would spend the whole time talking about that. But I do want to mention it. Because one of, the reasons why, uh, one of the reasons why so many have money problems is because there's never been a changing of hands. The, 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 we've never transferred control from our hands to God's hands. And, and there's kind of three postures that you can have right here. You can have what's mine is mine when it comes to my money. And if we're just being real, that's selfish. What's mine is mine. That's it. We all know that. That's selfish. That's no way to live. Or then you can say what's yours is mine, and you can feel entitled to what other people have, and that leads to jealousy, that leads to envy, or it leads to stealing. And it's not a, it's not a way to live either. Or what you can say is you can say what's mine is his. That's not selfish. That's not stealing. That's stewardship. That's a humble, honest view of our place in life. And what the changing of hands does is it leads to a changing of heart. Did you know that people who give in consistent, costly, and cheerful ways actually live longer, studies have shown, actually have a better quality of life emotionally, relationally? And at Coastway, I just want to put this in front of us, we want to be, we are a generous church. We want to be a church of givers, not takers. We want to be a, a, a church full of stewards who understand that what's mine is His. Every good gift that comes down from heaven was given to me from God above. Take a look at verse 12. And when they had eaten their fill, He told His disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. 
And this is Jesus modeling good stewardship. What is good stewardship? You do everything you can with everything you have. That's all Jesus expects. Do everything you can with everything that you have. And just like Jesus was not willing to waste a single fragment of the food that was left over, if he cares that much about something that was a felt need, how much more does he care about not wasting any part of your life? Some of you, you feel like God wasted this season of my life. My, you know, my hope was lost. My joy was lost. My life was, was, was just so frustrating in this season. But God wants you to stay close enough to Him to see how He's going to work it for good because He doesn't waste anything when you're close to Him and belong to Him. Verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And so something that's so helpful to see right here is how this miracle happens in community. The way that we would like to say it around Coastway is that biblical community, those who are, who are, who are communally seeking after and trying to get close to Jesus, biblical community is going to make the good times twice as good and the bad times half as bad. And for some of you, the good times are half as good and the, the bad times are twice as bad because you don't have it. And a big part of the renewal that Coastway's called to bring is to meet that need in the lives of those who want it. And if you're just like, I need biblical community in my life, hey, come down at the end, talk to our care team. I would love to have a conversation with you. Stop by the tent before you leave. A lot of people moved here and don't know people. A lot of people are just kind of in transition trying to get to know people. And we're called to know God as the Father, the church is our family, and that's a part of what we view our responsibility as a church. And so don't let that pass Don't let that opportunity pass if that's something that you need. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, think a political election. Think a political candidate, not an eternal candidate. That's how they're seeing him. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Okay. Everybody wants a miracle, right? How does it happen? Well, this story, this encounter with Jesus, shows us how it happens. And there's a lot of different angles, ways you could talk about this. We've done it a few different ways up to this point. I want to give you two ways that a miracle comes into our lives, just like it did the lives of those who were fed miraculously on that mountainside that day. Number one, you come to Jesus with less than enough. That's the only way that you could be qualified to experience a miracle is you come to Jesus with less than enough. You know, back in verse 7, Philip responded to Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough, is less than enough for each of them to get a little. So, like the disciples, what you do with, when you come to Jesus with less than enough, you come to Jesus with uh, what feels like less than enough faith. So, when you have less than enough faith, this is the person who's doubting God. And maybe that's where you're at. There's two areas, there's basically two areas where we doubt God. We're, we're tempted to doubt that God cares. And we're tempted to doubt that God controls. And so when you doubt that God cares, where do you go with that doubt? Well, you go in, in the book of John, Jesus is talking about signs, right? That's what he calls the miracles. The signs point us to the fulfillment. 
Just like you don't, we've talked about this before, just like you don't stop at that sign that says Myrtle Beach this way and put out your, your lawn chair and get your sunscreen on. No, you follow that sign to the fulfillment. Similarly, you follow the sign to the fulfillment, which is Jesus. The miracle's not the point. The, the, the man, Jesus, is the point. And so what happens is, if I am doubting that God cares about me, the sign you go to is the cross. Because at the cross, you get the exclamation point of God's care and God's compassion. There's a lot of reasons that my life feels upended right now, but one of those reasons is not that God does not care about me because I see His care poured out to the point of death on a cross. God cares for you. But maybe you're tempted to doubt that God controls. And what's the sign that you need to go to if you're doubting God's control in some area of your life? You need to get to the empty tomb. And you need to be reminded that if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. And that if, if Jesus has vanquished death and, and declared it is finished over sin, death, Satan, and hell, then nothing is impossible for those who believe and God has not forgotten about you. And so I hope by now that what you've seen is that if you have doubts, you would make a great disciple. <laughs> that, that ought to encourage all of us. Because like Philip, what do we do? We pick them up and we bring them to Jesus. And we stay around long enough and close enough to see how he's going to work it out for good. Amen? In verse 9, you feel like you have less than enough. You come to Jesus with less than enough. We see one more example of this. Verse 9, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So some of you, you're coming to God with less than enough faith, but others of you are coming to God with less than enough food. And this is a picture of the person who's doubting themselves and doubting whether or not God would ever want to work through you or whether or not God ever could work through you or whether or not God might be done with you. This is the person who's saying, I don't have enough. And so maybe you're saying, I have less than enough talent. Would you consider this man named Moses? He said the same thing to God right before he was called to lead the people out of Egyptian slavery. He said, I'm not a good speaker. And God said, I will be with your mouth. And as long as I am with you, no weapon formed will prosper. And so even if you don't feel like you have enough talent, what God calls you to, God equips you for. And that's the hope that we have. Maybe you feel like you have less than enough looks. Maybe if, if you're just being really real, you're like, I don't feel pretty. I don't feel like people want to be close to me. And I just want to tell you, Nowhere in Scripture does God call His image ugly. The world told you that. Instagram told you that. In Isaiah 53, 2, we actually read of Jesus that He wasn't that pretty. That He didn't have like a physical appearance that would just leave you starstruck and drawn to Him. And maybe you feel like you have less than enough courage. Guys, what were the disciples doing after Jesus was crucified? They were hiding in a room that was like locked. They were scared to death. And this is the, the, the unlikely group that God uses to start the greatest movement in human history and to, to birth the church. Maybe you have less than enough money. You're like, inflation is real. Bills are real. Life is expensive. Hey, I get it. Here's what culture says. Culture is going uh, to tell you, live off what you have, save if you can, give if and when it's maybe convenient. 
Here's what Christ says. Give first to honor God, save to be wise, live off the rest, teach yourself contentment. So I want to invite you to do this. If you've never done this, put together a budget. Put, to, put together a budget. If you don't have a budget, especially married couples, if you don't have a budget, get something like the Every Dollar app. It's the best investment that you'll make. And sit down together. I know, crazy, crazy concept right here. And have a plan. And, and work together. Be sanctified together as a married couple, or individually. Be sanctified by, by giving first to honor God, uh, saving uh, to be wise, and living off the rest to teach yourself contentment. And you're like, well, well where do I start with that? Well, hey, here, here's a starting point. Give 1% more if you've not started doing this. If, you, if, you, if you're totally new to this whole idea of like tithing or, or, of, or, of, or of giving, like just start somewhere. Give 1% more of what you're currently giving to the kingdom in a, in a way that advances the church. If, if you're being fed and led by Coastway Church, hey, w- absolutely, bring it on. But if there's another place, maybe that, that's your church home, Hey, give, give to that, invest into the house where you're being fed, and that's the encouragement that God says that He will bless. Maybe you're like, man, I got less than enough energy. Man, my marriage is hard, work is hard, parenting is hard, school is hard, the Christian life is hard. <laughs> Bringing that all together is hard. Here's what I want to tell you. God knows that, and He gives us the Sabbath once a week. How's that going? The Sabbath is an opportunity, an invitation even, for you to stop trying to be the hero. For you to stop saying, I'm going to make it happen. I'm irreplaceable. God can't work unless I'm up working. It's like, hey, let's have a humble view of, of what we actually can and can't accomplish. And, and enjoy the Sabbath. Once a week, a, a 24-hour period where you stop working, you enjoy you enjoy the beauty of creation. You enjoy the relationships around you in a way to where you don't feel all this stress because you're going to wake up again the next day. Hey, it's going to be there. It's going to be okay, and the world is not going to fall apart. When we Sabbath, what's that like? That's the equivalent of bringing fishes and loaves before the feet of Jesus. Because it's like, Jesus, I feel like I've got, I didn't do enough, right? I didn't do enough. But I'm going to bring you my fishes and loaves, and I'm going to trust that you're going to multiply it whenever I live under your word. Maybe you've got less than enough qualifications. Guys, the disciples were a lot of things qualified was not one of them. Some of you feel this way with your job. Some of you feel this way with, with, with church. Some of you feel this way as a uh, disciple. But be encouraged. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the call. Was this boy qualified to feed 5,000 people? No. Did it happen when he took his very little, even no qualifications, and laid them at Jesus' feet? Yes. Jesus qualified him. He did not qualify himself. And part of why God leaves us with less than enough is so we will finally look to him as more than enough so that we'll come to the end of ourselves and come to the beginning of God. So you've got to come to Jesus with less than enough if you want to see a miracle. Number two, you come to see Jesus as more than enough. In verse 11, it says, Jesus then distributed as much as they wanted. Verse 12, when they had eaten their Phil, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments. Verse 13, so they gathered and filled 12 baskets. Stop right there. How many baskets were filled? How many disciples did Jesus have? Jesus is not just going to save enough for a a handful of his people. He is going to save enough and provide enough for every one of his individual disciples. And if you are his disciple, he has not forgotten you. 
A big part of what Jesus is doing in this miracle is showing the people how every need they've ever had is found and fulfilled in Him. You see, back in the Old Testament, there was another large crowd who was hungry. And God's people had been delivered from slavery and were left wandering in the wilderness. And let me tell you, they weren't just hungry, they were hangry. They were grumpy. They were not happy. And yet God rained provision from heaven in the form of manna. And every morning the people would wake up and the ground would be covered with these little bread wafers that probably looked a little bit like frosted flakes. And in Exodus 16.35, here's what we read. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. God provided. Not, not less than enough, but more than enough. And what does manna have to do with this miracle? Everything. Because when you translate the word manna, it's actually a question. Manna means, what is it? So when we see provision, we're supposed to ask, where did this come from? And when Jesus fed the 5,000, it was his way of saying, I am what manna is, and I am what manna was, and I am what manna always will be. And this is why he goes on in the same chapter to say in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Can I tell you, this miracle was less about sustenance, and it was more about substitution. It was less about Jesus meeting the felt need of an empty stomach, and more about Jesus meeting the forever need of a forgiven soul. And just like the disciples couldn't afford the bread to fill the crowd's stomach on that day, we can't afford the bread of Jesus' broken body to forgive our souls on this day. And yet, full of compassion, Jesus would retreat by Himself to another mountain called Calvary. And once more, He would be left all by Himself. He would be condemned to a cross because of us, yet instead of us. And it was our sin that put Him there. It was His love that held Him there. And in Hebrews 12, 2, it tells us that it was for the joy set before Him that He endured it all. What was that joy? It was the sight of every crowd, of every nation, including you, including me, coming to Him hungry and needy. And let me tell you, the joy that Jesus felt on that day when He fed the 5,000 on that mountainside pales in comparison to the joy that He feels when He feeds eternal life to people like you and people like me. And just like the people on that day got as much as they wanted, so can we have as much as we want today. How much forgiveness do you need? It's offered to you in Christ. How much love do you need? It's offered to you in Christ. How much grace do you need? How much boldness do you need? How much courage do you need? How much confidence do you need? It is offered to you in the gospel of Christ and nowhere else. It's all possible by faith. And how does it happen? When we bring Him our less than enough and trust that He is more than enough. And here's what this... I think the, the New Testament writer puts it this way, He who did not spare His own Son, in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So hey, where do you feel like you're less than enough? And will you trust your less than enough at the feet of the one who can provide more than enough? And here's what I want to do. I just want to pray that that would happen 
for, for you, for all of us, if you would bow your heads, open your hearts.